So we're studying Hebrews, and many of you know that. Perhaps you're here for the first time, so um, give you just a, a little bit of a reminder of the background uh, of this epistle. Uh, this letter to the Hebrews was written originally to Jews who had happily put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, but because things had not turned out the way they had expected, they were considering a return to the comfort and security of Judaism. So there was a strong pull back toward uh, that which was familiar. And so this epistle was written to show them, primarily to show them the supremacy of Christ over all things associated with uh, Judaism and with the, the previous covenant, and to warn them of the dire consequences of turning away from uh, their trust in Christ. And here in the epistle, the author makes it clear that to turn away from Christ and to go back to Judaism is nothing short of departing from a relationship with the living God that in doing this, they would forfeit the atonement provided through the cross, and ultimately, uh, they would incur the wrath of God. And so the epistle begins, as we have already seen in our previous uh, two studies, the epistle begins with a reminder uh, that God's final word to man uh, has come to us in his son, through his son, and that the Son, Jesus, uh, is, he is no less than God himself. Not, of course, God the Father, but he is God the Son. And as we saw in our previous study, he is the Father's appointed heir. He is the creator of the universe. He is uh, the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the exact image of his person. And so up until this point, we've covered the first three verses, and we're going to pick up in verse four. But here, beginning in verse four, the author starts to build his case for the superiority of the son to, to all uh, that has proceeded. So, so everything that the Jews have ever known, the, the author wants them to understand that Christ is superior to all of these things. And he begins here uh, in, in this argument that's gonna go on through the, much of the rest of the epistle. Uh, he begins here with the angels. And the importance of angels in the mind of these Hebrew believers was primarily in connection with their part in administrating the law. So, so for these Jewish believers, the big thing is the law. The whole Mosaic system, which consisted of a temple and a sacrificial system and a priesthood and all of these various feast days. And, and th this was, you know, it's a, it's a religion and a culture. It's all merged together. And this is the, the now they're feeling excluded from that. They're, they're being isolated. So they're, they're being tempted to go back to this. And again, the author is wanting them to see that there's nothing to go back to. That, that's over. God has uh, vacated. He's, he has abandoned that. He's no longer part of that system. Uh, he has now come and brought this, this new and, and fulfilling uh, of all of those things that were symbolized there. He fulfilled them uh, through his son. But it wasn't so much that the Jews were necessarily worshiping angels, but they, they saw the angels in connection to the giving of the law. Uh, although it's not explicitly stated in the Old Testament that the angels were the, were the ones who um, distributed the law to Moses, um, obviously that was the case because the New Testament refers to it on two occasions. Uh, Stephen says it once in Acts 7, and Paul says it in uh, Galatians chapter 3. So um, even though the author addresses the angels first, he's really aiming to show the supremacy of Christ over the entire system, over the entire Mosaic system. And so uh, with that, let me read to you 
the verses here before us, and it's easy just to start with verse 1 and go through verse 14, so I'll do that. So God, at, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by or in his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And also, he said, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same in your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So the angels and the author is here clearly, he's drawing as, uh, as we've seen already, He's drawing deeply from the Old Testament. He's going back to the scriptures, the very uh, sources that they would look to for their understanding. He's going back to those things and he's showing them that his claim that, uh, of the superiority of the son over the angels and all of the previous system, he says, you know, in a sense, he's saying, look, this claim is, <laughs> it's rooted in your scriptures. This is what the scriptures themselves teach. And so, he does this, uh, this comparison uh, of Christ with the angels. Now, uh, since we're on the subject of angels, let's just take a quick moment and talk about angels. Uh, the word angel means messenger. Both the Hebrew word that we translate angel and the Greek word, they, they both mean, they, they simply mean messenger. So the, the term, of course, designates uh, their essential function. So their, their essential function, the function of angels, is to, um, as, as God's messengers, they bring God's message. And there are at least four specific functions that we see in the scriptures concerning angels. Uh, number one, we see that angels, uh, they actually praise and they worship God. We find different passages uh, in the scripture to support that. In uh, the book of Job, at the creation, the laying of the foundation of the world, it says that all of the sons of God, which is a reference to the angels there, all of the sons of God, they shouted for joy. So they were there uh, proclaiming their worship to God as God was creating uh, the universe. Uh, we read in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, at the birth of Jesus, you remember there appeared... Uh, an angel speaking to the, the shepherds, and then there was a multitude of heavenly hosts, and they were singing glory to God in the highest, uh, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So they're expressing worship to God. They're giving him glory. So that's um, one of the things they do. Secondly, angels communicate God's message to man. If, again, if you go back in um, the Old Testament, for example, the, the prophetic message, uh, say, that, that came to Daniel, uh, angels brought those uh, 
prophetic messages to Daniel. We come to the New Testament, we find uh, a very similar thing with the Apostle John, the book of Revelation. Much of that was brought to him and revealed to him through the work of angels. Remember, it was the angel Gabriel who announced uh, the birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. And so this is part of what the angels do. They bring uh, God's message to man. They also minister to believers. So angels minister. Now, of course, angels are uh, invisible, but there are times we see in scripture that they take on human form. And part of their duty is to minister to believers. Uh, we read in Psalm 91 that he, speaking of God, shall give his angels charge over you and they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. So, you know, we, we talk sometimes about uh, a guardian angel. Now, a gar there's, there's nowhere in scripture that necessarily uh, tells us that, that guardian angels are a reality, but there's a passage where Jesus refers to little children, and then he refers to their angel who always behold the, the face of my father. So from that statement, people have come up with the idea that there is a, a guardian angel assigned to each one of us. Um, that might be true. We don't know for sure. There's probably, for some people, more than one assigned. Uh, <laughs> some people, I don't know that one would be sufficient, but... Um, but then we're told here in uh, Hebrews 1.14 that they are minister, ministering spirits who are sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. So this is what they do. They, they minister to us on God's behalf. Uh, they, they help us in ways that most of the time I think we're, we're probably not even aware of. And then fourthly, angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgment, and they are greatly involved in the activity surrounding the second coming of Christ. And so Jesus told us that at the end, uh, the angels would gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Uh, he said that the angels would be the ones who would uh, separate the, um, the righteous from the wicked and so forth. So these are some of the things that we see that angels uh, are doing, that they are responsible for. And as we think about angels, angels are certainly amazing beings. They are certainly powerful beings. I think of that uh, incident recorded back in the Old Testament where the, uh, the army of the Assyrians had come up to, to conquer uh, Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel. And in one night, uh, an angel, it says, went through the camp of the Assyrians and slew 185,000 men. So angels are extremely powerful. Remember, there was that one occasion where when, when Jesus was being arrested and Peter pulled out his sword to protect him, Jesus said, you know, Peter, put away your sword. He said, don't you think that I could uh, call upon my father and he would send uh, 12 legions of angels so angels are powerful. Angels can be extremely destructive if they need to be. So they are definitely amazing beings, but this is the author's point in what he's talking about here in the verses that we read. Even though they are as amazing as they are, the gulf between Christ and the angels is the gulf between the creature and the creator. Angels are created beings just like we are. Christ is the creator. He's not a created being. He is uh, the creator. Now, some uh, cultic groups try to put Jesus in the category of an angel. They, uh, they say, well, you know, he's Michael the archangel. It's so interesting. You find that you know, with groups of people that come up with these ideas, you, you kind of sometimes wondered, well, did they ever read the first chapter of Hebrews? Because this is a, a good refutation of their whole theology, because the point of the first chapter of Hebrews is that Christ isn't an angel, that he is superior to angels, that he is actually um, no one less than God the Son. 
And so in verses four through 14, the verses that we read, um, what the author does here is he goes back to the Old Testament and, and through the Old Testament, he shows uh, the teaching of the superiority of Christ to the angels. And in all of these Old Testament passages that he uses, he shows uh, that Christ is the Lord. And every time he refers to the angels, again, quoting from the Old Testament as well, it's clear that the angels are the servants of the Lord. Christ is the Lord. They are the servants of the Lord. And so the author here, he quotes from the Psalms almost exclusively with one exception. He also quotes from, um, from 1 Samuel chapter 7. But let's just look real quickly at, at the quotations here. So first of all, uh, in verse five, he says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you. He's quoting from the second Psalm there. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He's quoting from first Samuel chapter seven there. But then he goes on, uh, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. So you see, he's showing, no, the, the son is superior to the angels. Look, uh, the angels worship him. They, they wouldn't be worshiping him if he was like them or, or if he was, uh, you know, less than them. But the angels of God worship him. This is probably a quotation from the 97th Psalm. Um, probably some say it might be a, a quote from Deuteronomy as well. Uh, just a, a little point for anybody who's interested in this little technicality. The, the passages here being quoted are quoted from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32, uh, 43 uh, says something similar to what verse seven uh, says here, let all the angels of God worship him. But the 97th Psalm says something similar as well. So uh, probably the 97th Psalm, but then he quotes again, he says in verse seven, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Here he's quoting from the 104th Psalm. But then in verses eight and nine, he quotes from Psalm 45. And notice what he says. He says, this is the author, he says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the author here says that the psalmist, writing under the inspiration of the spirit, is speaking to the son. And that 45th Psalm, if you take the time to read over that today, you'll find that the, the verses here are pulled right out of that uh, 45th Psalm. And that 45th Psalm is a Psalm of, of praise to the, the king. It's a, it's a song of, um, of worship to to uh, the, the Messiah King, the Davidic King. And notice what it says. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you see, clearly, the scriptures teach, both Old and New Testament, that the Messiah is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so we have the interesting thing here. God is being addressed, but God has a God. How, how is that? Well, again, we're looking here at the, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is being addressed to the Son. And then the reference to your God has anointed you, that would be a reference back to the Father. You know, it's interesting, as some of you know, I was just in Israel a few weeks ago, and, and one of the big, uh, still, you know, 2,000 years later, one of the big stumbling blocks for the Jews is the idea uh, that Jesus is God, or, or the idea of a trinity, that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, you know, the thing to me that's so fascinating is, even though the New Testament brings this out very clearly, you can argue the case so powerfully from the Old Testament itself. And even the Jews themselves, they, 
they, they come so close because even in their rabbinical literature, even in the writing of the scholars, they recognize that the Messiah is, you know, in some way, he's a divine being. They, they get that. They, they can't, it's inescapable. <laughs> they, they really can't get around it. But then they just can't, they can't go all the way to embrace the idea that there was a plurality within the divine nature rather than just a singularity. And it's just a, like a blindness on their mind. So, uh, you know, they, they'll look at these passages and say, yeah, well, you know, it seems like it, that's what it's saying, but it, it just can't be that way. Just because we just, we, you know, we just refuse to see it like that. So here in, in Hebrews, again, he's arguing, of course, his case before um, Jewish believers but he's doing so from their own biblical text showing them look this this is what your scripture this is of course in his case probably would have been our scripture said so he quotes from the 45th psalm clearly stating the deity of Christ but then verse 10 is even more amazing this is a, a quotation from the 102nd psalm but now he identifies uh, Jesus with Yahweh. And so quoting the, the 102nd Psalm, he says, and you, Lord, or it's the Hebrew word here, Yahweh. It's the, it's the name for God. And obviously the author here is applying this passage to Jesus, who he's already said earlier uh, that he is the creator of all things. But look at what he says here again. He says, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. So here the author is drawing from the psalm. He's... Uh, He's saying that this psalm is speaking of Jesus. He's referring to him as Yahweh. And once again, he's showing that in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth. He's the creator. So his whole argument, again, is to show that Christ is superior to all that we have previously known. He's superior to the angels. And so there in verse 14, the angels or verse 13, or to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? The answer is none. He never said that to an angel. He said that to his son. That's a quote from Psalm 110. So all of these quotations from their scriptures, primarily from the Psalms, and then he tells us regarding the angels, the angels are ministering spirits. The angels are servants. Christ is the Lord, the angels are the servants. Now, we are in the, the process of an argument here. And so we have to follow the argument through to its uh, conclusion, at least when he comes to this, this first major point. And so that takes us now into the second chapter. You know, sometimes we have uh, the chapter uh, distinctions sometimes aren't helpful because if we just stop at the chapter end, we lose the flow of the thought, but he's continuing on. So we must continue on as well. And so he says this, therefore, since Christ is the Lord and the angels are his servants, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the author is... You, you see what he's doing here. He's arguing from the less to the greater. So if the angels who are clearly inferior to Christ, if the message that was uh, communicated through them was binding, if the message that was communicated to them uh, was revolted against and brought a, sh a sure judgment 
uh, upon that revolt, if that was the case with these, the message that came through these inferior messengers, his point is how much more is that the case with the message that has come through the Son? And so he urges them, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. So as I pointed out from the beginning of our teaching here in Hebrews, this epistle is one, uh, it's, it's very much a warning against turning away from the Lord. And it's, it's actually a series of these very strong warnings. And this is the first in a series that will take us all the way through. Uh, it's, it's the first of these strong warnings that he brings to us. And, and notice, really, we're, we're very early on into the epistle. I mean, he gets right to the point pretty quickly here. So he makes the point of the superiority of Christ over the angels, over the law, and, and their temptation was to move away from Christ. And so he warns them very strongly against that. But he uses the term, lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. Now, he's using that intentionally because that's what's happening with this group of people. Now, maybe you remember if you were here before we talked about, there's probably been 20 or so years uh, since Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. The day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit was poured out, the church began to be gathered. Uh, many of these people that are being written to here, I think it was written primarily to Jews in Jerusalem, uh, they would have been in the faith now for quite some time, maybe close to 20 years. And what's, what's happening, what the author sees happening is that there is, there's, there's been this, this drift that's been taking place. Now, the thing about drifting you know, is that it's slow. It's oftentimes subtle. Sometimes it's, it's imperceptible, really. You, you don't even so much realize that it's happening. It's not something that you, uh, you do abruptly or, or suddenly or just, you know, you don't get up one day and just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall away from the Lord today. Uh, it, it's it happens over time and it's, it's much more subtle. And this is true. It was true with them, obviously. This was happening. But, you know, it, it's really true with many people. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? And that does seem to be more the case. I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody that's actually been argued out of Christianity, but I have met a number of people that have, that have drifted away. They didn't realize that that's what was happening, but just, you know, one day they woke up and they realized, wow, they, they were so far from where they were at one time. Now, what does the author say? He says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. You see, because there's this danger of drifting, we have got to, uh, we, we've got to keep our eyes on, on the marker. And in this particular case, he's referring to God's word. We've got to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. As we continue to pay close attention to God's words and apply them to our life, that's how we keep from drifting. But if I fail to do that, that's where the drift takes place. I would imagine that some of you at least um, have been to one of our beaches in the summertime, and maybe you've been down there when uh, there's been a strong current. You know, in the summer, we get the, the south swells that come through, and, and with those south swells, you get the strong current, and you don't, you don't necessarily uh, notice it except when you get out into the break and it, it takes you away down the beach. But I've had this experience many times. Unless you have a, a marker, you, you will find yourself 
sometimes, you know, in just a short amount of time, you can be taken uh, a mile from where you actually went out into the water, but you didn't realize you were drifting. The only way to, to um, know that is to have some, some fixed point on the shore that you can keep your eye on. And then you, you see that, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're getting away from uh, that particular lifeguard tower there or whatever it might be. Um, but apart from that, if you went out on a beach where, there was, where there, was noth- there was nothing fixed that you, you know, let's just say it was just a sandy beach and everything looked exactly the same. Well, you get out on the water, you could drift a couple miles and not even know it. And this is true in relation to what the author is talking about here as well. Because, like I said, drifting is sometimes, it's almost imperceptible. We don't realize that it's happened. But we're taken with the current or we're taken with the tide. In some cases, we're taken with the tide of time. With the tide of time. You know, when you first become a believer in Jesus, there's so much excitement. You're so thrilled that you've discovered this new life in Christ and you're a Christian and you're saved and you're, you're discovering all these spiritual realities that you didn't know anything about. And it's all so new and wonderful. And, uh, you know, it, it's like that. It's the, um, you know, there, there's that season But the longer time passes, there's the possibility and and really the danger that we would just grow cold toward those things after some time. Oh, you know, I've I've been in this life now for so long that it's easy for me to um, forget maybe uh, what life was like before. Uh, where, where at one time it was, it was so fresh in my mind. Oh, gosh, it's so wonderful to be in Christ. It's so great to be out of sin and death and darkness and all of those things that were once so much a, a dominant feature in my life. But now, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years have passed and you've been in this Christian life for so long, you just kind of you get to a place where you're not really excited about it anymore. Well, what's happened? Well, the reality is you've drifted. You've drifted away from that place that you need to be in. Jesus spoke of it in, in different terms. He, he spoke of those who had left their first love. You see, the Lord wants us to and uh, really calls us to maintain the same fervency and passion and all of that uh, that we started with. We, he wants us to maintain that all the way through. And if we begin to drift, if our hearts begin to grow cold, and at some time we don't check that, we don't arrest that, we're going to end up, we we can drift so far out that we maybe we'll never find our way back. Maybe we'll never be concerned to find our way back. So sometimes it's the tide of time. Sometimes it's the tide of familiarity. Again, in the early days, all of this stuff is so new. It's so exciting. It's so unlike anything that you've ever known before. And you're hearing all of these uh, wonderful things about who God is and what he's like and what he's done. And, and then there's the prophecies about where the world's headed. And, you know, the Bible says this here and you read in the newspaper this and you see the connection. You think, oh, this is all so amazing. It's also new. It's also fresh. It's also different than anything you've ever known. But then again, with uh, familiarity, you get more and more familiar with it. And then it's sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I heard that before. Yeah, oh, I remember that story. Oh, yeah. And, you know, things that once really impacted you, things that once moved you, things that once stirred you, things that once provoked you and, and caused you to say, wait, you know, I got to be more serious about this. Those things kind of just, they, they don't have that same effect. You've probably heard the term familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes that's true. And sometimes it can be true in our spiritual life. We've just heard it all before. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, when occasionally I, I do, you know, like a chapel service for, uh, you know, kids at Christian schools who have been in Christian school their entire life. And you're sitting there talking to them and, you know, they're, 
they're, they're as far away as they could possibly be in their minds because they have heard it all from the time they were little kids. That, you know, kindergarten, they heard the stories. And all the way through uh, elementary school and up. And now they're, here they are, their seniors are getting ready to graduate. And they're hearing the same old stuff over and over again. And that can happen. It can happen to us. Oh, yeah, I've heard that song before, right? Yeah, oh, not that song again. You know, like, oh, yeah. Oh, that guy, he prays the same way all the time. Yeah, you know, I've heard all of that. You know, we're just, it's, we, we can become so familiar with it that we, we just drift away from our passion to these things. Uh, the tide of busyness can take us away. We can become so busy. I mean, how many people uh, have there been, and Jesus even uh, illustrated this in, in his parable of the sower, where the, you know, the son of man goes out, he's the person in the, in the parable, and he scatters the seed, and he talks about the seed that uh, falls on the thorny ground, and um, it springs up, but then the, the, the weeds choke it out. And he said, this is a person who hears the word, who receives the word, but then the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, they come in. And that's what we're talking about, the busyness of life. Oh, I, I'm too busy. Yeah, I know I, I used to be committed to being in fellowship, but you know, man, I'm so busy now. I've got a new job and I've got new responsibilities and I've got to do this and, or I've got new interest and we, get, we can get so busy with the things of life that we begin to neglect our spiritual life and that causes us to drift away. Or it could be the tide of disappointment. And I have seen many people who have been carried away. They've, they've drifted. They've drifted along on the tide of disappointment. And that was, I think, in many cases, what was happening with the Hebrews that are written to here. They were disappointed. Things did not work out the way they thought they would because they were followers of the Messiah. And isn't it true today that that happens in our lives sometimes? We have these expectations and we think that things are going to go a certain way, but then as time goes on, as life goes on, it doesn't happen the way we thought. And disappointment sets in and we become upset, even though we wouldn't necessarily come out and say it. You know, there's, there's some anger in our hearts toward the Lord because, you know, after all, I thought that things would be different now. And, and, you know, you said, if I followed you and believed in you, that you would bless me. And I, I'm still struggling with this or that, or, you know, I, I, I still, I'm still single and, and I've wanted to be married all of these years. And those kinds of disappointments come in. And as a result of that, there can be this drifting. And of course, there are probably other things as well. Well, what's the solution? How do we avoid this? Well, again, he told us, we are to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. We have got to, well, first of all, we've got to recognize that our faith is not primarily about how we feel. Because so often this is where the problem arises. Because I'm, I'm not feeling it like I once felt it. And we've got to get out of that feeling mentality. And we've got to get back to just trusting and believing in what God has said in his word. And that's what he says. He says, we need to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. We need to go back and remember the message. We need to go back and remember God's grace and his love and all of those things. And if our hearts in some way have grown cold, we need to get on our knees and say, God, rekindle that fire in my heart. Now, in giving the more earnest heed, notice what he says, having, give, giving the warning in verse two, if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
So in giving the more earnest heed, the first thing we need uh, to realize is that we don't want to neglect this great salvation. This, this word neglect, the Greek word, here it's translated neglect. In another place, it's translated to be careless of. In another place, it's translated to make light of. So if I'm going to avoid drifting, I have got to make sure that I'm not neglecting this great salvation, that I'm not being careless in regard to it, that I'm not taking it lightly. And I think if we realize how great our salvation really is, that, that will help us. I, I think these people that are being written to here, they've forgotten that. They had forgotten. That's why the author is, is trying to get them back to seeing who Jesus is. They had forgotten who he was. And sometimes that's what happens with us. And we've got to go back and we've got to realize that salvation is the greatest thing possible. It's the greatest thing imaginable. There's nothing that even compares to it. It's greater than the word great can even describe. That's why he says it's so great a salvation. It's more than great. And, and, when we, and when we lose sight of how great our salvation is, that's when we get into trouble. When we start thinking, you know, there's something else out there that's probably uh, just as good or better. There's something else that's going to bring me more fulfillment. There's something else that's going to bring me more satisfaction. There's something else that's going to bring me more thrill or more excitement or whatever. Whenever we start thinking that way, we're already drifting. No, we have got to keep at the forefront of our minds. We've got the greatest thing there is. We've got so great a salvation. Why is our salvation so great? Well, number one, it's because of the greatness of our Savior. It's because of the greatness of our Savior. And again, this is how we avoid drifting. We just keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep reminding ourselves of who he is and his magnificence, his glory, his, his awesomeness. And, you know, if, you, if you're struggling with that, this is where you just, you know, you just say, God, you know, bring me a fresh revelation of yourself. Sometimes it can be helpful to, um, you know, of course, reading our Bibles is always necessary, but sometimes it can be helpful to even get a book or something that will highlight uh, the, the greatness of God, maybe something like the attributes of God or something that will delve deeper into uh, the person of Christ. And some things like that can become so inspiring where you really get a fresh perspective. You know, sometimes that's what we need. We need to, we need to see things from a little bit of a different angle sometimes. And just to get a fresh look at who the Lord is. And so that's where, we, uh, that's where we start in guarding ourselves. We remember the greatness of our Savior. Meditate on Jesus. Think about him. Look at what the Bible says about him. Think about what he has done for you, how much he personally loves you, what he uh, gave up, how much he sacrificed. All of those things will stir our hearts back toward where they need to be. So there's the, the remembrance of the greatness of our Savior, but then remember how great your salvation is. Like I said, with the passing of time, sometimes you can forget how bad things used to be. You can forget how miserable you were because you're, you're so far removed from it. So here I am in life, and I've been a Christian longer than I wasn't a Christian. So I look, um, I, I'm so far removed from my, from my non-Christian life, a lot of times I forget what it was like back there. And occasionally I'll have a thought like, well, you know, hey, that wasn't so bad. But then I got to stop myself and say, wait, okay, let me rethink that again. And I, I might remember one particular moment where, okay, you know, things weren't, I mean, Sin has a pleasurable aspect to it, right? And there are times when, oh yeah, that, that moment right there was pretty cool. But 
Let's think about what happened after that. Oh yeah, that wasn't so good. So I know for myself that there are times when I need to go back and remember how miserable I was when I was lost in sin. I need to remember how I felt that, that emptiness and that, that sense of futility in life and that, that constant frustration with nothing being able to ever really bring satisfaction. I need to go back and think about that. I need to go back and think about uh, the, the people I hurt and the hearts that I broke and the, the things that I did and the, um, the self-centeredness and you know all of those kinds of things and the ugliness of all of that. I need to go back and remember, oh, Lord, yes, this is so great a salvation. You saved me from that, from from the guilt of my sin, walking around under that burden of guilt. And of course, ultimately, from going to hell, because that's where I was headed, and that's where we were all headed. And by the grace of God, we're not going there, but we need to remember that. And so that's how we do what the author's telling us to do. That's how we avoid this drifting away. We do it by giving the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, remembering how great our salvation is, remembering how great our Savior is, remembering how great our own personal deliverance is, and and just getting back to a fresh... uh, passion and devotion for the things of the Spirit. That's where we need to be all the time. And if we've drifted in any way, which you know what? Listen, we all do at times. I don't know anybody that that would say, I've never drifted. I've only always been totally passionate, completely on fire, 100% committed. I don't know anybody like that. But the important thing is when we recognize that there's been a drift, that we get back to that place, that we have that marker so we know, wait a second, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm way far down the beach here. I, I've got to get back over here to, to my marker. And of course, that's where God's grace is right there to always meet us and to always help us to get back to the place that he wants us to be. In closing, I want to quote from um, an author. And, and I want to I quote this because as we go through this epistle, again, like I said, there's, there's many strong warnings in the epistle. And I personally, if you've heard me teach for a while, which many of you have, um, I hold the conviction that you know, if you're truly saved, you're going you're gonna to remain saved. That is, uh, salvation is an eternal thing. But we also have to face the fact that there are these warnings in Scripture that seem to sometimes indicate that we, we might lose the salvation. Now, I don't think you can lose it, but I think we have to have the right perspective on it. Let me quote from uh, this uh, writer, uh, Schreiner is his name. He said this. He said, the New Testament nowhere, and this is the important point, teaches that an initial acceptance of the saving message is sufficient without perseverance in faith. Then he goes on, if the people of God in the Old Testament received earthly punishments for transgressing the Mosaic law mediated by angels, then those who repudiate the heavenly revelation given by the Son will not escape final judgment. There's a certain amount of seriousness to this that, we, that is unavoidable. We can't escape it. Because as he said here, the New Testament nowhere teaches that an initial acceptance of the saving message is sufficient without perseverance. You see, the biblical picture of salvation is not that you just receive Christ at a certain time in your life, that you say, as is so commonly done today, a sinner's prayer, or you go forward at an invitation that was given. I'm not putting those things down. But what I'm saying is this, is that in and of itself doesn't prove anything. 
What proves something is that you go on with Christ from that point. That's biblical salvation is something that you enter into and you continue in throughout the rest of your life. That's how we have the, uh, the confidence. As, as we're continuing on with the Lord, that's where our confidence is. If I'm not following Jesus, if I'm not living for Jesus, if I'm not uh, serious about submitting my life to his word and so forth, and I'm looking back on, well, you know, 25 years ago, I said a prayer, and so, you know, I know I'm going to be okay. If that's my thinking, I'm deceiving myself. The Bible never gives us any comfort in our sin. Never. Never comforts us. The comfort is come out of your sin. I'll forgive your sin. But while we remain in sin, there's no comfort. There's no encouragement. Like, hey, don't worry about it. You're saved. Just keep sinning. It's all right. You'll make it to heaven eventually. The Bible doesn't say that. Some preachers say that, but the Bible doesn't say that. So we, as we make our way through this, this letter, we have to take these warnings to heart. We have to take them seriously because they were not only relevant to those that were the original recipients of the letter. They're obviously relevant for us today as well. And so if we've drifted, thank God his grace is available and he's there welcoming us back into that intimacy that he longs to have with us. Lord, thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Lord, thank you that your compassions never fail. And thank you, Lord, that you're there even when we've drifted to draw us back to yourself, that you faithfully uh, placed within your word the warnings that will keep us from the path that leads to destruction. So today, Lord, would you uh, work in our hearts Lord, that we would follow through to the end with the initial commitment that we've made because we know that's what salvation really is. It's following through with you. It's continuing to believe in you and walk with you and live for you. And we thank you that your grace and your power are there to enable us to do that. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that's maybe drifted in some way and they better than anyone else, they know that themselves. And I pray that you would draw them back to yourself, that you would show them, Lord, that you're full of grace and mercy and you're wanting to restore them and you're desiring to bless them. So help them, Lord, to turn with all their hearts. And while their heads are bowed today and we're praying, if, if that's you and you just, you know that you know that God's speaking to you today. You, you've definitely drifted in some way or another. If that's you, slip your hand up because I want to pray for you. And we're going to ask God to do that work of bringing you back to that place. And he's going to do it because he's faithful. Father, we thank you for those that raised their hand. And Lord, you know their situations. Everyone uh, is unique and you know what their situation is. Thank you, Lord, that you have an abundant supply of grace to cover them. And Lord, your love and your mercy, your cords of compassion are drawing them back to yourself even this minute. So Lord, solidify that in their lives, we pray.